You're listening to Athletes the Other Side, a podcast that explores the path sportsmen and women tread when they're not competing in the sporting arena. With your host, Ben Nichols. Well, hi, folks, and welcome back to Athletes the Other Side, this podcast that explores the sides of athletes' lives that we don't often hear about, the sides away from the pitch, the ring, the court, and the pool. And amazingly, we're at episode 13. Lucky for some, I hear you say. Well, I'm lucky with my guest today. As always, you're listening to Ben Nichols, formerly of the World Anti-Doping Agency, Commonwealth Games, Dubai Tennis Championships, and more. And today, in this 13th foray into the podcasting journey, I'm speaking to an athlete who is as remarkable as she is record-breaking, as spirited as she is successful in and out of the fencing piece. She represents an era when athletes always knew there was a life outside sport, an era when they had to because it was the time of amateurism. In her sporting heyday of the 50s, she won Commonwealth silver and gold medals in the individual foil, a fencing event which was to result in the pinnacle of her career, Olympic gold at Melbourne 1956. When she won the gold, the press labelled her, and I quote, a middle-class figure and a dark horse competitor. How quaint that sounds now. And in doing so, by achieving the feat she did, she became the first Briton to win fencing gold in the Olympics. And she's held that incredible status to this day and has gone down in British fencing folklore. For her success, she was awarded an MBE, albeit belatedly just two years ago in 2019. And beyond all of this, I'm proud to call her my great aunt. My guest today for Athletes the Other Side is Gillian Donaldson. Welcome, Jill. Thanks for joining me today from California. It's my pleasure, yes. Um, great to see you. And normally I would be speaking to you, um, you'd be in upstate New York, but this time you're, uh, with, you're with David, uh, your, your son in sunny California. So how are you keeping during these pandemic times? Um, yes, adjusting, you know, with the mask to be worn, but, but it's not pretty hard. I've had two vaccinations, which is great. Um, and, um, you know, it... Um, it really doesn't affect us that much if you play by the rules and, you know, wear your mask when you go out. And that's not too hard to do. So, you know, I'm very lucky. And, and, and it's starting to, I understand, in the States and in California, it's starting to pick up the vaccinations going quicker. So people are starting yes. to return to normality. Absolutely. Yes, yes. And uh, I was very lucky. The only advantage of old age, I guess, is you come in first. <laughs> absolutely absolutely. um okay well i want to start by as as you know this podcast is about um athletes and former athletes and their life away from sport what they've done in their life away from sports um obviously i know you through you being my great aunt my my mum's aunt um and i want to sort of start back at the beginning if if i can so tell tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up in england what sort of environment you were growing up in before you got into fencing yes well unfortunately it was just the beginning i guess i was 11 years old when world war Two broke out so it was very much affected by the war um, and uh, that's actually, luckily, how I came to fencing. But um, the school we were at was literally on the south coast, and you could see dog fights. I mean, when you look back in time and the planes, so you had German planes and um, English Spitfires fighting o- overhead. I mean, it's a whole different world. And um, so there were a lot of evacuations. We had to be... Um, uh, moved further north uh, gradually and finally ended up in Scotland and um, went to a school there. 
And then there was another complication because the British government was still in charge and said the, the teachers there could not get a pension because they were in Scotland. And so the school um, closed and uh, I was moved down to Gloucestershire. And as luck would have it, I mean, I loved every sport. I did, you know, the tennis, lacrosse, netball. And um, we had a fencing instructor there, which was unusual. But uh, he was a wonderful man. He was ex-Foreign Legion, a Czech. He was tough. And uh, he was teaching, actually, the um, um, naval cadets. Um, and, um, and then he came part-time to the school. So... Uh, he taught us, and he was very strict. And, you know, like so many things, you don't like it at the time, but it pays off. Absolutely. So that was your sort of entry into fencing. How did it really pick up and get serious for you? You obviously found a, a knack for it. You enjoyed it. Like you say, you, you played played different sports, but fencing obviously sort of resonated with you. What what do you think were the key steps that got you into into playing it in you know at the national and then international level? Well, I think mainly because um, it was a sport you could do on your own. And I, uh, after leaving school, I moved to London. And um, there was a fencing club there, which I joined. Um, you know, you couldn't at that point in your life, you know, do a team sport. And so uh, I used to go for just general exercise. I enjoyed it. So I would go every evening to the fencing club. And um, then uh, the British Fencing Association noticed I had some talent. So they... Um, got me into traveling abroad and uh, gradually it worked up, as you know, um, go from one championship to the next and various competitions and um, success brings you great gratitude, I guess. So uh, I went on with it um, just because I enjoyed it. And uh, it's a great sport. Looking back, what were your aspirations with fencing, do you think? Did you think, I'll just take it month by month, year by year? Or did you look a long way ahead and think, you know, I want to be competing at the Olympics. I want this to be full time for as long as possible. How did you view it? Literally, as you said, one year at a time. And um, it was excellent exercise. I was then studying to be a dentist. And first of all, we're just general um, subjects like uh, anatomy and physiology and so forth and then um, gradually got on I went to University of London and um, competed for them and success brings you great joy and then you go on to the next level so yeah so um, the Fencing Association um, were very good to me. Um, they recognized I had a certain talent and uh, included me in the first um, big event was the Olympics in 1952 in Helsinki. And it was a, a, you know, a great experience. I did horribly badly, but <laughs> I learned. But yeah, well, that leads me on to that. So four years later, you obviously went on to Olympic gold, which is an amazing accomplishment. Um, at what moment do you think you knew you were you had a really good shot at getting a getting a medal or getting a gold medal for that game? First two rounds, yes, and then um, when I got to the final, and 
Um, the way fencing works is you have a final of eight people and you fence everyone. And uh, I lost the first fight to Olga, um, a Romanian competitor. And, um, you know, and then after that, I won every other fight. So um, she and I tied and then we had an exciting finish. <laughs> so we had the last fight and um, luckily um, I led the way and uh, finally won. And the, the amazing thing is, you mentioned there you were, um, you were competing against a Romanian. It was obviously not a typically British sport. It was very popular in continental Europe, I think. And still to this day, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're, you're still the only British gold medal um, Olympic winner, um, and which, which is amazing. And I think that says how much, you know, this isn't a typically British sport. Were you aware at the time of feeling like an outsider in terms of you weren't from a, a country that was, had a strong track record in fencing? I never felt that. Um, I just, you know, from an early age, I had been competing. And then um, as it became post-war England and you began to travel more, then um, I was competing in smaller competitions. You know, go to um, university level fencing events, France and Belgium and uh, countries where they did a lot of fencing and uh, I gained a lot of experience there. So, um, yes, it culminated. I was at my peak, I guess, 1956, and and you know the results. Yeah, and that led to more success. I think you you went on to Commonwealth, um, Commonwealth, become Commonwealth champion as well, and won other medals. So I guess, you know, medals breed confidence, don't they? They, You're absolutely right, yes, absolutely. And um, I didn't uh, go on too much because at that point then I was more concentrating on my career. And, um, you know, at that point it was getting serious. You know, I went to the University College in London and then um, to the National Dental Hospital. And then finally... um, I graduated and I was offered a job in London, which was actually that brought in your father. I knew your grandfather, excuse me. Grandfather. Um, <laughs> yes, I forget generations. Um, but your grandfather had a friend who had a, a dental practice um, in one part of London and a fencing club was in the other part of the square. I mean, it was so convenient. And uh, so it was very easy the day's work, go to the fencing club, train, and, um, you know, it made it just convenient. So I've had a lot of luck in my life. <laughs> and talk talk a little bit about um, where that took you. As, as, as we'll go on to, you moved to the United States, to New York. Um, but what, you know, a lot of athletes these days, when they're professional, um, Again, we don't hear that much about their life when they stop competing in sport because that's, that's their life. They've, we've always known that kind of funds them for many years. Obviously, in those days, it was the amateur era. So there was always an expectation you'd go on to, like you say, dentistry or another career. Talk about, um, talk about that. You obviously knew you would always be going on to something after fencing. What took you, um, what took you I guess, what, what made you give up fencing or what, when did you decide to retire? And then... What took you over to the United States? Um, let's see. The World Championships was in Philadelphia one year. And we were all amateurs. Only two of us could uh, compete. And uh, that was thanks to a friend of my father's 
who one day been in his office and asked what I was doing. And my father said, well, the world championships are in Philadelphia and Chicago for to go. And he, in his generosity, paid for my fare to go to um, Philadelphia. Philadelphia led me, um, there was an, an Englishman in Canada and he was promoting fencing. So he invited me to go to Canada to go to the Canadian National Exhibition and to fight the men's world champion. So wow. Wow. <laughs> this was like just before Billie Jean and Bobby Riggs, you know, this oh, wow. was man versus woman in the Canadian National Exhibition. And Sounds like there's a, there's a movie to be made there. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because the men's world champion was the most charming Italian. I mean, he was just great and he was good looking and he was, you know, every girl's heartthrob at that point. Yeah. And um, he couldn't have been more gracious. You know, he let me hit me a few times to make it look better. <laughs> And so um, then I was in Buffalo, uh, I mean in um, Canada, and I went to Buffalo and um, uh, asked the Eastman Dental Dispensary. Now, George Eastman, this American, um, had made his money in Kodak films, and he asked a friend of his who lived in Rochester, New York, um, what do you mean, like to do something philanthropic, and uh, what uh, did he suggest? He suggested um, to set up Eastman Dental Clinics. They were dental clinics for um, people who could not afford regular fees. And, um, and they were all over the world. They were in Rochester, New York. They were in Sweden. They were in France. They were in Denmark. Um, and there were five of them. And one of the uh, ones was in England, in London. And um, my future husband was a student at the Eastman. That's where I first met him. And um, then he decided when his course was over that he would apply to the Eastman in London. And uh, uh, then I think the story tells itself, doesn't it? You met Bob, like you say, your future husband. And, and um, then, uh, you know, he said he'd like to do a little extra training and it would be in London. So uh, <laughs> that, that tells the story. <laughs> And and of course you 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 moved off both of you moved moved over to to the US um, and and set up home in in New York City originally was that right? Um, no, actually it went back to Rochester because Bob was still had another year to do there and uh, and then after that he was offered um, a job in Syracuse which is quite near Auburn. Um, and uh, so that's where we started off married life was in Syracuse, New York, New York, and we stayed in New York State for the rest of my life. And yeah, I mean, I've, I, as you know, I've, I've been up there. It's an amazing part of the world. It's beautiful. Um, tell, tell us as well about you obviously worked in dentistry. You had your own practice there for many years. Um, you also looked at other opportunities as well. One of the things I've always been really amazed by was the opportunity that took you to Montserrat to, to, to work in the Caribbean island of Montserrat, which is a, a British overseas territory, a very small island near Antigua. Um, I, you know, my recollections on it, I haven't been, but are limited in terms of what my parents tell me and what my uncle tells me, who I think had a bit of an eventful trip in the 90s when the volcano uh, was erupting. So I, I, this is my, you know, my 
my understanding of it. But of course, you were you were living there half the year and living in New York no, half the year. No, I used to go uh, down every other month. Well, in orthodontics, which I was doing, um, you know, had to readjust the um, wires and, and everything. So you had to look after your patients every other month was um, about minimal. But um, I did that until the volcano erupted. And actually, even for a year after that, because things settled down and uh, went, um, and I would continue to go down there. And then things started to get very rough. Volcano started to blow again. But um, oh, it was um, a great experience. <laughs> Um, and what was um, what what led to the opportunity to go and work in Montserrat? And when, when was that that you began? Well, I was at a cocktail party, and this great friend of mine who had a place in Montserrat um, came up to me and said, "Oh, my husband can't uh, come down with me this year. Um, would you be interested in coming?" And I thought, "Absolutely." So um, that's where it started, and then. I stayed with her for a week, and she was showing me around um, Montserrat, and um, we went to the main town, Plymouth, and uh, while she was chatting to her friends, so she used to go over here, I um, went into the dental office just to see what it was like and met Dr. Buffon, and he um, said, well, what part of dentistry do you do? And I said, well, orthodontics. Oh, he said, we need an orthodontist here. So... I thought, oh, that would be interesting. And uh, so I went home after the holiday and checked with Bob, and he was great. He said, of course, you know, do it. If you can do it going down every other month, and if you want to put up with that, great. So I did, and then we bought a home there. And um, as your parents know, and um, that was how it all started. And. And then, of course, you know, you still go back there quite often these days or, or every year or every couple of years. Is that right? This is the first year that I haven't spent a winter there, yes. Okay, well, what's the state of the island today? Obviously, the, the volcanic eruption was a long time yes, ago. We have nine cases, which um, is not too shabby, um, but it is a small island. And then what they do is they have to go on lockdown um, whenever a visitor comes, but... Uh, very few, obviously, are coming to the island. But, um, no, they only had several cases. And then when they go on a lockdown, everybody has to stay home and have um, any essentials delivered to their house. But um, they do pretty well. And aside from COVID, how has Montserrat fared um, in the last 10, 15 years in terms of re regrowing its tourism? Is it on a long way back? No, it's really booming. The big thing about Montserrat is one of the few um, Caribbean islands that has fresh water. And that was actually why our friends bought the, uh, their place on Montserrat. Um, and um, so that is pretty essential down there. So, um, yes, the islanders remain British. And uh, so I was able to get a um, British dental um, qualification down there and um, and I used to go every other month which was great fantastic well hot, warmer weather than upstate New York in winter exactly. 
Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you was about was um, going back to the fencing. Of course, a couple of years ago, 2019, you received an MBE. What was, you know, very almost very belated that that must have felt. What was that experience like? It was belated, and even Prince Charles mentioned that one because when he handed me the medal, he said, "Oh, this is a little late, isn't it?" And then he realised that you know what he'd said. He said, oh, went on to other questions. But it was, and I'm not sure what prompted it at that point. Um, I've never found out. But but it, uh, it must have been a great recognition of your work in sports. Well, it was, and uh, it was a total surprise. And, uh, of course, I was delighted. And uh, uh, Actually, they said, you know, if you come to the palace, uh, you can bring three people with you. That's the regulation. And so I had to write back and say, well, that's lovely, but I have four children and I'm, <laughs> I'm not making that decision. <laughs> so, no. Actually, I, I did mention that my youngest one was a doctor and I was quite old and maybe I might need his help. <laughs> so, yeah. But they wrote back immediately and said, of course, you know. Good. Yeah, you didn't want, you didn't want to pick, pick straws. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and how connected are you to fencing today? I'm sure you've stayed in touch with the British Fencing Association over the years. I'm sure they want to speak to you still, given your accomplishments in the sport. How connected are you? Well, I am connected to the officials who are running fencing. But other than that, um, and nothing. And, um, and I've got really away from it. But I do get, the, obviously, the magazine every other month and... Um, Having met some of the officials, have um, contact with them, but um, and that's about it. Brilliant. And one one question I ask all my guests is, um, what? So what's next? What's next for, for Jill Donaldson? <laughs> to keep going, I guess. At this point in my life. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it was great you've been able to get a get away and a change of scenery during this last year as well. And my son is being so gracious. It's wonderful. Brilliant. Um, okay, Jill. Um, I've got one other kind of section I have for the podcast, which is six um, specific questions, sort of six quick fire questions, and that's coming up next. You're listening to Athletes, The Other Side. So, number one, what's your favourite sporting moment of all time, whether it's in fencing or from what you've watched or seen over the years? Um, Obviously, winning the gold medal. (laughs) Yeah, no surprises there. Brilliant. Um, What about your favourite non-sporting moment in life? Um, I guess my wedding. (laughs) Best to a place in London. And, um, yeah, it was a wonderful day. It really was. It was hard for me to decide to leave England and go to the States. And so um, I'm afraid I probably gave Bob a hard time about that, but I couldn't persuade him to come to England. So that was the alternative. Uh, but Bob, Bob was originally from where? Which part was he from? He was from New York State, yes. He was from New York State. Yes. Okay, yes. so... 
yes. all the family family came over to England for the wedding and well that was the thing that he was an only child and so that was uh, what he told me he said how can I leave my parents you know and I was just one of four and um, so yes so I said okay but it was a big decision let me tell you I, I bet it was yeah and number three what book are you currently reading um, actually, I picked up a book. I like um, biographies, actually. That's my favorite. And this one was on Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and fascinating character, whom I admired from afar, but now I'm learning about her and her life. And um, well, I just wish she could have lived a bit longer, but that was it. Yeah, she passed away last year, was that right? Yes, yes, and they had to make then a replacement to the Supreme Court. Um, number four, one surprising fact that people might not know about you. I'm on a postage stamp. Um, yeah. So that was really um, kind of fun. Um, and which, uh, which, which country was the postage stamp in? Uh, that was from Dominica. In oh, wow. Yes, yes. And I'm sure that was to do with the Olympic gold, was it? It was actually a pretty good photograph of me on the stamp. That was great. Brilliant. Um, best piece of advice you've ever received or given? Take every opportunity you get and um, don't try and think of the consequences. Just go ahead and take it. Go ahead and, and go for it. That's very similar advice to what my mum always gives me. Sheen bit of advice. <laughs> Lastly, your top three dinner party guests, if you could choose a, a dinner party of your of your choosing. Well, um, I, first of all, I'd like the Queen, because I would love to talk to her. She's led an amazing life, and I'm a huge fan of hers. And she's my generation. So, uh, you know, we're very similar in age, and I can remember her early years when she was being brought up, and um, yes, I, I would love to be able to talk to her. And I'd like Bill Gates, would be fascinating, because uh, I admire him so much, and I'd love to hear more about how things developed for him. And Chris Gracia, um, he was my twin. He won a gold medal the same day I did. He's for steeplechasing. Um, and so we had quite a lot in common, saw a lot of each other. So uh, I would love to be able to talk to him again. And he started the London Marathon, which was great. Oh, wow. Well, you'd need more than one dinner party with the conversation, I think. Wouldn't you? I think you're right. <laughs> Um, Jill, fantastic. Well, it's been great to get you on the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you for asking me, and I just love what you're doing. Thank you. All right. Keep well. Thank you very much. Good to see you. Well, it's an absolute honour to get a relative on the show today. My great aunt, Jill Donaldson. A real personal touch on this podcasting journey, which is continuing to grow thanks to you all. Thanks for tuning in and becoming loyal listeners to this podcast, which is now six months old. And there's more to come soon, folks. I can assure you of that. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you want to see what else is coming up, then as always, subscribe at Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Google. Leave us a review. Don't forget to follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at AthletesTOS. It helps us a huge amount. And in the meantime... Keep well, keep listening, and goodbye for now.